Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of Mayor of Easttown. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us, what we like to do on this podcast is Richard and I like to pick a show that we're watching kind of closely, break it down week by week, uh, and discuss it with you all, listen to your thoughts and theories over email, etc., and, and try to sort of piece together our understanding of the show. Sometimes we talk to folks who worked on the show. This week we have... Uh, Mayor's number one suspect, Billy Ross himself, Robbie Tan, uh, is on the show. So you'll be hearing from him actually kind of early in the episode. Uh, and then we'll get into the discussion of the episode. Before we get to 
that, before we get to poor Billy Ross, before we get to the discussion of the episode, uh, Richard and I want to go through some emails and other contributions that we have. Richard, episode six. Uh, what emails do we have here today? Well, most of these episodes, or all of these emails are about episode five. Of so course, of course. As, yeah. as happens with any mystery show, when you near the end where things are being revealed, sometimes that renders a lot of emails obsolete, unfortunately. Um, but we do have a couple that I think are still relevant. Certainly one of them. Um, the first one is from Nicole, uh, who says, I was super bummed when we saw Jess with Dylan and the other friend and was super suspicious when they stole Aaron's journals. However, I think Dylan is trying to hide who DJ's real father may be because he wants to keep DJ. Aw. I think he, tr- the awe was in her email. <laughs> um, I think he truly <laughs> fell in love with the baby and was maybe more upset than he realized he would be when he learned he wasn't the father. He also kept saying, don't read them about the journals, which I found surprising at the time. He wanted to respect Aaron's privacy because maybe he's feeling lots of guilt about everything, the way he treated Aaron, the catfishing pro- possibly leading to her death, etc. Hmm. I don't know if that is supported by this episode, though I think we still have a huge question mark about what Dylan is up to, even in this violent interlude that he has in this episode. Yeah, I still, I agree. I think his motivation is to keep custody of DJ. I just, I don't know. It's, that that, that was that was my theory too. It still kind of is my theory. That being said, like his interaction with Jess is just... I, I feel no awe about Dylan <laughs> in any of this. Like this guy sucks and should not have uh, custody of that baby. So um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some other big Dylan secret that, you know, could be revealed in those journals, but I think, and this is getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but I think, you know, what just plucked out of that journal is a photo and that photo was connected to like the Ross family. So I don't think it's connected to Dylan unless it's about paternity. That's the only, that's the only secret I could see that he is hiding unless they're going to like introduce some third act (laughs) Dylan twist, which I just don't think they have time for. And isn't the paternity issue as, at least as it pertains to Dylan already settled, like they know that he's not the father. They know that he's not the father, but in episode five, when he was talking to Brianna out on the porch, he was like, my parents are going to sort of try to get custody of the baby right. anyway. And she's like, even though he's not yours. And I think it's like, if they don't know who the father is and Aaron's dead and her dad, Kenny's in prison, I think Dylan's family could make a reasonable bid for custody of the baby. But I think once it's known that, you know, the Rosses are involved. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if I had to guess where that baby winds up, I'd say probably with Lori at the end of the day. Um, but we'll see. Um, but that, that would be my guess. Yeah. So. That would be an interesting uh, conclusion for poor Lori. Poor Lori. Uh, okay. One more email to read. And then I think you might have another email to read. I do. Um, so this is from Sarah uh, who writes, I don't feel equipped to succinctly address the bigger issue of how we should be talking about cop shows, but regarding whether or not Mayor is a good cop, this is my take. I think we are shown in many ways that Mayor is a good cop, and when I say good, I mean good as incompetent, not good in the moral sense. What Mayor is not good at is handling her personal life. We are also shown this at multiple points throughout the show. So as far as the planting drugs incident goes, that, that is Mayor making a very stupid personal decision. 
When it happened, I initially thought, come on, she can't be that stupid. But after thinking about it, I think we see her make a lot of poor choices regarding her personal life, while at the same time being an excellent detective. Again, I'm not commenting on her goodness or morality as a person, just on how she can be both good at police work and also make such a colossally stupid decision in her personal life. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know, I, I, I understand where Sarah's getting with that. And I think, yes, we have seen several examples almost in every episode where Mayor has been good at investigative work, right? Yeah. But part of her job also is to not let personal life kind of come into it. So I think if, even if you're, you're pairing away the morality of it, like she yeah. is bad at being a police officer because she's doing things like planting evidence and um, working a case when she's off duty you know, or, or been removed from duty, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's complicated, but I don't think the moral question uh, yeah, is, I think that's a separate thing in some ways, not always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm, a, I like Mary and I support Mary and I think she's on a real journey and I'm, and I'm happy for her. And I do, I honestly kind of think the whole drug planting thing was a narrative push to get her in therapy. Cause that seems to be sort of like the whole real thing of the, of the series is like, Mare needed some therapy. Do you know what I mean? But which I agree with and I'm glad she's getting, but the I am a little uncomfortable with the fact that she's just let back on the force in this episode. Like that just feels like I'm glad Mare's on the case, but like it feels a little consequence free to me. Uh, does that make sense? It does. And I think that the two things are unrelated. She planted drugs on the mother of her grandchild uh, in completely illegal, immoral, whatever fashion. Yeah. And then she happened to be help sort of solve the case of who abduct, abducted the, the women. But she wasn't supposed to be doing that because she was right. removed from duty. Someone got killed. Well, two people, you know. Um, And I just, I don't know. I kind of think that like, yes, yeah, she is sort of a hero, but I don't know if that would be enough to wash away everything else you know unless they were just trying to save face like oh no mayor no she's not suspended she's totally one of ours like we're proud of her you know which could be the case honestly and i yeah and that is in keeping with the way in which you know police watch out for police in general um the the only i guess the consequence like because you know a lot of people are apologizing to mayor treating her like a hero in this episode the consequence we do see is um colin's mother gives her not just one, but two slaps. The, the old double slap uh, from yeah. Mrs. Abel. So, um, so yeah. And then that's something that really, really profoundly affects Mary. And we'll talk about that. So there are some consequences there to everything that's been going on. But I, I'm a little I, – I hope it's an intentional commentary on the system of how easily Mary's, like, let back in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. All right. This next message is a little, I don't, I don't quite know how to like preface it, uh, entirely, but, uh, we, we got, got a, message. a message from a listener. We got a message from a listener. They asked, they genuinely asked me to use their name. So I'm not name dropping, uh, Mr. Damon Lindelof, who is the creator of Lost and The Leftovers and Watchmen, uh, is an avid Mayor of Easttown watcher and has a theory, uh, an alternate theory, uh, of the case. And would like us to read it and asked that his name be attached to it. So here's my dramatic reading of Damon Lindelof's theory of the case of Mary Easttown. My favorite theory, he writes, is that Aaron was killed by Therese Cooley, the power forward from the 1994 championship game who was defending Mare on the Lady Hawk shot. 
I'll continue, but only if you and Richard promise to read this next week and attribute it to me. Teresa was a in the gym night of the quote unquote reunion. In the same way that Mare has been celebrated for her iconic shot, Teresa, I think it's Teresa. Is it T H E R E S E? Is that a Teresa or a Therese? Therese. I don't, I, I don't Therese? know. Therese? Yeah, I'm not okay, sure. I'm going to read it differently every time then. Therese has been reviled for not getting back on de- defense and giving Mare the open look. It was all downhill from here. Bad relationships, bad jobs, bad everything. There was a scout there that night from UPenn. Teresa had put up 18 points and nine rebounds, but none of it mattered because it was all about fucking Ladyhawk. As Mare hobbled out onto the floor that night, almost 30 years later, the cheers cascaded around Teresa and she, and it was then. She decided something must be done. In truth, she had already begun to plot her revenge by getting Carrie sober and introducing her to the lawyer that would represent her in the custody battle to come. But that would not be enough. Teresa had also spoke had also been a regular at the poker game at Benny's bar. She heard the muffled clanks from below and saw the pipes move on occasion. But going to the cops would only relieve Mayor of the pain of an unresolved missing person's case, and that simply would not do. I know what you're thinking. Why Aaron? Well, for reasons Joanna has already spelled out for us, Aaron was at the center of a scandal that would not only completely destroy Mare's own family by implicating her ex-husband, but that of her best friend as well. Her best friend, Lori, who set the pick that allowed Mare to make the shot. As John's secret lover, Aaron's death would ruin them all. And so that night, after the rally, her neck hot and drunk on a six of rolling rock, Teresa texted Aaron and, well, the rest is sort of obvious. Here's the best part of my theory. Whatever the show does the next two episodes, whoever appears to be the murderer, just know that it was really Teresa executing the ultimate frame job. Uh, so that is Damon Lindelof's, uh, 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 you know, his, yeah. his pitch for who done it. I think, um, I think we're done. I don't think we need to do next week's finale episode. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. it. Right? We'll just assume it's correct. You know, look, if someone can create the leftovers. <laughs> they got to be right about this. Oh, and watch. I mean, and, you know. here's what I would suggest: that HBO consider doing Teresa of Westtown season two, starring. I have a few options here: Charlize Theron, uh, Julianne Moore. Um, those are those are my two best bets. <laughs> uh, where we get started the whole season again, but from but from the other side, uh, like the uh, the Twilight book, where it's from Edward's perspective. I mean, exactly on par, comparable, comparable uh, situation. Yeah. So, um, so that is, that is, that is, that is from Damon Little. Thank you so much, uh, sir, for listening to the show and for submitting that. Um, and anyone else, if you have a theory that you want to bop in before the finale, please email us. Still watching pot at gmail.com. Uh, probably by the time we get it, we will already know the ending. So, you know, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, bigger reactions to how you feel the whole season is going will be will be a better use of your time um and then before we get no let's just go let's go to let's go to our interview this week uh we've got robbie tan lovely lovely fellow who has some great scenes in this episode um that he talks about here it's it's a little bit of a complicated interview of course because i haven't seen the finale he can't talk to me about the finale this whole thing ends on a big cliffhanger where billy is ostensibly still the suspect but that's not a theory i believe so you get to listen to this fun conversation where all of that is true and um it was a yeah all, partly a complicated interview because you had driven him out to the country for ostensibly a weekend of fishing right 
Sure, yeah, but so he was you know, as you know, and, yeah, as yeah. you know, never I go to the countryside with Joanna. <laughs> People should top gun in the tackle box. So yeah. you know, classic me. Um, all right, so here's our here's our uh, Riverside chat with with Robbie Tan. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At eBay, you'll always get that feel of real because your fashion purchase will be backed by authenticity guarantee. Whether it's a knit bag, a must-have watch, dreamy jewelry or fire sneakers and fresh streetwear, every step will feel authentic, every flex will feel real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay authenticity guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. We are so delighted to have Robbie Tan on the podcast. Robbie, how are you? I am doing so good, Joanne. I'm so happy to be here with you today. (laughs) Excellent. Um, We obviously (laughs) want to talk to you about all things uh, Billy Ross, but we also know that there's a lot you can't say because there's one whole more episode to go. So we're going to do our best to thread this needle and talk about what we can talk about today. Uh, sound good? All right. Let's do it. All yeah. Right. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's start sort of at the beginning for you. When, uh, you know, when you first hear about this role, when you're auditioning for this role, um, you know, how is Billy presented to you as, as a character? That's a great question. Um, so when I auditioned for this role, I didn't get the script. I was told it was, you know, like a recurring role, but I, I had no knowledge of what the role actually was. And actually, when I read, when I, when I auditioned, I did the scene from episode five that, uh, that just aired. And then I actually did, uh, interestingly enough, I did Kenny McMenamin's scene in episode two, where he's like Dylan, Dylan Hinchy is the, the father. Mm-hmm. I did that scene because, uh, you know, I think clearly there was a lot they were keeping under wraps at the time. So they gave me stuff from the show, but not necessarily anything like specific about the show. Um, so when I, when I, I didn't really learn anything about the role, like what it was until after I got cast in it. So maybe this role, like I'm like, you know, holding 
coffee for some character for you know a few episodes like I just really had no idea what it was going to be and then I got cast and then obviously I found out more in depth what it was and I was like oh my god I'm in the ship you know what I mean I was like I'm in I'm in it (laughs) like so um right so episode six you know this is going up after episode six and everyone will have seen episode six um and you get to do just like a lot of juicy stuff uh in that episode like like we said this is a tricky situation one we got one episode to go from the end but like you know how did your understanding of who billy was and and the depth of emotion you wanted to bring to that character how did it evolve as you worked on the project to answer that question i think that like what brad does and i think what what makes the show work in the way that doesn't something I think that I intuited even in reading that first scene was that everybody in the town just has like a lot going on Um, because Brad wrote all of these backstories for these characters that were just like super rich and super you know full of life and so I I, I had a a lot to like kind of chomp my teeth into (laughs) even uh outside of just what was going on in the story itself that's kind of like a vague way to explain <laughs> like the what what it was so billy you know billy in this episode i don't know that we knew this already about billy that he's like living with his dad um and uh, you know we see him walk in with like a, a six pack or whatever you know like the characters always have like a roll mm-hmm. a rolling rock in their hands like that you know so like you know what can you tell us, if anything, of that back of yeah. that backstory that Brad created for for Billy? Yeah, well, it's it, it's interesting because I don't I don't know what's gonna make it because I haven't seen episode six also, but Billy's had some like tragedy happen in his life as well, particularly with family members in his life. And he's been sort of like wearing that uh, underneath all of uh, of what's been going on. He's been wearing that also uh, for quite some time. So when when you know the situation happens in the show, it's kind of compounds with like this personal tragedy tragedy that Billy's also been experiencing over uh, a few years. Um, and I don't know if they get into it in episode six again, because I haven't seen it of why he's living with his dad. Uh, I don't know if they talk about any of, any of that. Because also, too, it's like uh, a lot of it, it's hard for me to know what got shaped out of uh, what we shot because mm. of COVID, you know, a lot of stuff kind of shifted and changed. And so ideas about characters and storylines that were there, like, might not be there and, like, full-on backstories or, like, do they allude to things? So there's, for me, it's actually interesting because I'm discovering it, <laughs> what's in the show, as you're discovering uh-huh. it too. So uh, so that's been kind of, uh, um, you know, an interesting thing too, to be like, oh, this is this is how they're shaping this, or this is how they're, the direction they're going with, with the character. And this is what they're letting people in on or not letting them in on. But the personal tragedy aspect was something that Brad wrote in there um, that that is a big reason you know why Billy is so downtrodden. <laughs> <laughs> downtrodden. What a perfect word for poor Billy Ross. Um, yeah. The um, well, something that that you know, uh, talking to Craig, uh, your uh, ultimate director, and talking to Evan Peters a bit. This understanding of like how they dramatically sort of reshaped who that character was from an initial conception. And so you mentioned something sort of similar to that. Do you feel like Billy underwent some sort of 
overhaul in the COVID pause? Yeah, yeah, there's 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 stuff that um, you know, storylines and what the, the beautiful thing about what Brad did and why I just love Brad as a writer is he wrote out all of these stories and they're all very like the backstories for all of these characters, you know, were um were so fleshed out. And then I think because of, you know, COVID, a lot of stuff had to kind of get cut away and reshaped and I wouldn't say that that Billy's been uh, like heavily COVID um, like adjusted in any mm-hmm. way, um, but there's definitely been like minor changes here and there, like little shifts um, for sure. Uh, and I think for the better, like as I've been watching it, uh, I've been like, it's been fun to be like, oh, that's been the decision that that decision got made because it's setting this other thing up to be even more potent or be even more like, holy shit, that came out of nowhere. Definitely, there's been some shaping of like this mass of material, you know, pulling and being like, what's the most effective way to tell this story? Mm. And and absolutely for me, and and, and I think for the show in general, that has has, happened uh, quite a bit. So to, to overwrite, to overshoot, and then like find the story in the edit, almost like shape it in the edit kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, and, and then what can you tell me about, um, like, let's say for episode six specifically, um, even though you haven't seen it, <laughs> um, uh, right. for, for basically the plot that happens around episode six, um, is that stuff you shot before the break or after the break? Do you remember? So episode six, so, uh, actually the end of episode six, like uh, uh, going out into the woods and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That was all right before. That was literally right before COVID, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And then the stuff that we shot, um, that's like the main substance of it. The scene with Joe Tippett and I, who, you know, plays John. I think it's, you know, like a, I would say like, you know, the big scene in, in episode six. Um, I that That was actually the last, the last shot uh, scene in production oh, wow. uh, uh, the one where I'm drinking beers and you know I, you know the scene mm-hmm. I'm talking am I being vague too no vague? no I got you <laughs> that was the last scene of production and, and actually all of my stuff in episode 6 got shot I think in a single day <gasps> like me coming in the house oh, wow. the, yeah. the, the, the big scene in that and then so like that that was, a, that was after COVID though and what can you tell me about? Okay, so let's let's talk about that big scene as much as we can. Um, you know, this is this is like a huge uh, emotional place that you have to go into, and it's yeah. an emotional place also that has to hold some ambiguity for for the viewer. And maybe maybe that's just up to the edit. But like, uh, my question is, like, what work did you and Craig do on that, or or what was it like shooting the day? How many takes did you do? Like, how do, how did you? land that absolutely yeah no that's that's a great that's a great question i think like that's the beauty and the nature of like this kind of show so like it's inherently like how do you play things that like really read and also can remain ambiguous Mm -hmm. um and definitely that's something that craig was really really great about and 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 craig i love the way craig works because um craig likes to shoot uh several takes 
in different ways because especially with a, a show that's like it's, it's a delicate balance right like how people play scenes can tip the hand one way or the other about what things mean and for craig he was always like let's shoot it a bunch of different ways so we kind of don't back ourselves into a corner so that we can kind of you know go back into the edit and 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 find the the, the balance that way so for me as an actor, it was super fun because, you know, I got to do these scenes like five kind of different ways, <laughs> you know, and throw in a little wrinkle yeah. every single time. And then like, that's also been fun, too, to be like, oh, that's what they used. Oh, that's the take mm-hmm. that they used. Like in episode five, uh, like watching that particular take, I didn't I didn't necessarily think that was the one that was going to get used. Because I, rem- I think I remember at the time we were doing that scene and uh, Kate was like, Kate said something like, oh, my God, it looks like you just shit yourself <laughs> or something like something like something like that. And I was like, well, they're not going to use that one. And then I think that's the one that ended up getting getting put in the show. <laughs> so it, absolutely, there's a delicate balance. And, and, and Craig was very much like, let's get a bunch on the on on tape and and we'll make a decision kind of later so on. there's a there's a version of that episode five scene when when billy gets like a fresh rolling rock and then decides to peace out um where where <laughs> where, <laughs> where billy played it a little cooler than uh than yeah. he did. okay i see i see exactly yeah. just like all right see you guys <laughs> yeah, exactly. right but they exactly. went for the shitting himself version all right uh <laughs> exactly can i swear yeah, on this yeah. podcast yes, i don't know is can. that yeah. okay 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 <laughs> Um, all right. So, uh, well, let's talk about Kate a little bit. So like, you know, Kate is obviously, you know, the titular mayor, the, the, the center of the show, but she's also, you know, an EP on the show. Um, and I was wondering if you talk a little bit about what you observed in terms of her being both performer and someone, you know, sort of helping to run the show. Oh yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I mean, just to give you like an, an example of uh, what she was like, I have, I have so many amazing examples of her on set. Uh, but like you take for it, it, example, like uh, Kenny McMenamin scene when, you know, uh, Patrick Murney, who was playing that role was finding out that, you know, Aaron was, was dead. And the way that, Kate as both actor and executive producer like that is an, that is an incredibly difficult scene like if that scene doesn't work like you know the, the sh- that's like the crux of the show in many ways um, and she just went out of her way in all the ways to give Patrick all the space in the world and make sure that he was taken care of on that day like she looked out for his performance in a way that I don't think many actors would um but certainly someone of her like stature and like you know she's done so much she's i mean it's kate winslet uh she was just always looking out for everyone and i remember like my first my first day on set also uh like it was it was you know really early in production i got there was like freezing and like you know things weren't set up yet so i kind of had nowhere to hang out and i go in the dressing room and she's there and she's like just go hang out in my trailer, you know? And I, and I was like, I, I don't think I'm like, I don't <laughs> like, that's very kind of you. You know what I mean? And, and, and she, that, and she was just like that. And then she sat and talked, we talked for like 20 minutes and, and she's just somebody who, um, you know, sets the tone and like takes care of everybody and you feel supported and everybody's doing great work because she is, uh, 
just taking care of everybody. And she's incredibly smart and incredibly detail oriented and never cheats you, you know, in terms of like, she, she's been working day after day after day after day. And I show up on set, you know, after a few weeks and she is, you know, she's beyond where I'm at, you know, at that point in terms of energy. And like, so I, I have nothing but, uh, incredible things to say about her in terms of being an actor and also somebody running the show. She, it was a special thing to, to watch. And then what about Brad's level? You know, Brad, Brad obviously wrote everything. Um, what, what was his level of involvement, you know, as production was rolling on? He cares so deeply about it. And obviously because it's about a place that he was from and he was so personally invested, but he, he, he Brad was very much like, involved and you know I, I would always be like we would shoot something and I would always just want to know how he felt about it because he was such a good barometer for you know if we were if, if we were hitting you know hitting the mark if we were if we were doing justice to his his vision and he was always generous about it too he was never make you feel like oh that wasn't quite it or like that this is you know you're doing a terrible job he, he was always interested in doing helping out in a way that was like let's just make it better like what do you need and that that i i he is not a hollywood guy <laughs> he is like uh-huh. he is a real good good yeah. guy do you feel like you got a note either from brad or craig or kate or anyone that was like particularly helpful to you and in, in feeling like you can dig into who billy is not not anything in particular like not like a aha moment but I think that his willingness early on to, like, we had, you know, some pretty significant conversations uh, about, you know, the role and about the show. And, and, and that is, you know, not, it's not something that always happens, you know, especially TV and film. Like, you don't always get to go in there and do all this kind of like, I guess you would say, book work or yeah. like, you know, actor work or circumstance work. Yeah. But he laid the groundwork. And he was willing to do that with everybody. And that, that was helpful for me because I didn't have to show up and go, hope I'm doing this right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, Something that the show does so well, and I just don't know how y'all did it, uh, is it really feels like these are people who have known each other forever, right? Like that there's so much unspoken history and so much intimacy, like, you know, scenes where the Ross family and like Mare are like hanging out together. It just feels like these are people who have sat in this room a million times to watch the game or whatever it is. Um, Do you have any insight into sort of, as actors together, how you, how you delivered that intimacy as, as a director, how Craig made that work? Like, what do you think? That's such a good question because I think a lot of the times the, you know, supporting roles take their cue on what the style of the, the, or what the, yeah, the style of the piece is going to be, you know, based on who is at the top of the, the call sheet. Right. And I, so I think that just knowing Kate was, the the lead of the show it just kind of said like okay everybody or at least for me like this is the level and this is the kind of way you need to approach this and uh that in that way is like natural dropped in real like circ like lit like 
nothing fake, nothing inauthentic in performance. Like if you've been brothers with somebody or you've known somebody for 10 years, like you better find a way to make that believable by like living with those circumstances in like a real way. So it, you walk on set and it feels like you've known each other for years. So just from the jump, knowing who was in, who was at the top of the call sheet was like, Oh, this is the kind of project this is. This is the way I need to approach it. And then every day, I mean, you work with people. I, I, I very much followed the lead. You know, you work with like Julianne and it's even being a scene with Julianne and Jean, a smart, um, you know, I'm following their lead in a, in a way. So like they're setting the tone in scenes like that. So I'm just like, okay, so we're going to, we're going to do this in this sort of way. And I'm, I guess that's the best way I can put it. I followed their lead in how to approach the, yeah. <laughs> the scene work. Did you learn anything from like observing Gene Smart or Jillian Nicholson or? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that like, particularly with, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they do such a, I think this is very much connected to the question you asked, which is like, they don't work hard as actors. Like, and, and, and that to me is something I really admire and have always aspired to to get to get better at is to not seem like I'm acting and they have such a comfort level and ease and allowing themselves to be you know seen on camera that to to work with them is to get like a little bit of a key into what are they how are they doing this right how they're how are they how are they actually pulling this pulling this off is super helpful for like me as an actor to go Oh, that's how they're doing mm -hmm. it. And maybe one day I'll get to that level, but it was cer certainly helpful to, to see how it, how it was happening. Yeah. And to your point about multiple takes, I, I loved something Craig told me. He was like, yeah, I would do all these takes with Jean. And then she would be like, can I just do one where I get to just be fucking funny? Like, can I just do, can I just do the funny take also? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, sure. Oh my God. She, she had me like, she had me dying that scene where she's talking about Betty Carroll, like, you know, the Cheerios line. I mean, it was funny every time, <laughs> every time it was hysterical. Uh, yeah, she's, she's amazing. To that relationship question the you know, the central one, it seems like for, for Billy is, is with John, with Joe Tippett's character and, um, uh, you know, <laughs> the HBO description for the John Ross character says like an unbreakable bond with his brother. So like, you know, what can you say about their relationship and how you cultivated that with working with Joe? Well, what, what I'll say is that Joe and I got along really well. Like we had a very good working, working relationship and we both really cared a lot. I mean, it was, it's a big, it's a big deal for both of us, you know? So like there was this sense, even from the first time I, I met Joe that it was like, what are we doing? Like, what's, what, what is this in terms of the, the unbreakable bond thing? I mean, I think that there's like familial, I, I don't know. It's hard to say with that, that description and how HBO describes it. But I think that a big part of the show is like family. And like, for us, it was like, we're brothers. Like we, we are like ride or die. Like it's me and you. Uh, it's a it's a big it's a big deal to both of us. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I think as best you can right now. It does. Okay. Um, okay good, absolutely. Good, good, good. All right. Well, I think we did it. I don't know what else we can say with one more episode to go. So I think we did yeah. our best. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Thank yes. you so much for the chat. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Of course. I'm, I'm, I thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Richard, where do you want to start with this week's episode? Oh, should we start with the title of the episode? Oh, yes, yes. That is okay. a good place to start. Okay. So this as as we've noticed each week, the episodes mean something very specific. Uh Craig Zobel, the director of all the episodes, told me that Brad Inglesby, the writer, picked all the titles so and had very specific reasons why. So I, maybe that's a good good question for an email. If you can piece together all the reasons why uh, these various song lyrics and poem snatches are in here, let us know. But this one in particular, um, Sore Must Be the Storm, comes from an Emily Dickinson poem that reads as follows. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard the sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. So, Richard, any, any, um... Dickensian, <laughs> Dickinsonian analysis there? Um, you know, it's interesting. I took a class in college that was just, we read every single Emily Dickinson poem. And this was an, this is a pretty famous one. Hope is a thing with feathers, yeah. that term itself. Um, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm kind of stuck on that, that, that could have bashed a little bird that kept so many warm. Mm. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, there's, there's so much in this show about care and familial stuff and, I don't know. I wonder if that's pointing us, to, you know, toward what we kind of get to at the end of the episode, that this is a very, like, close thing. This is in the family, you know. Um, but that's my, I don't know, that's my best guess, I guess. But, like, the, also the stuff about hope. Um, there is it some hope, at least, with, you know, the, these girls are returned to their families and things are looking, well, I mean... People are looking toward the future more than they have been, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of stuck on that that one line about the little bird that kept so many warm. Yeah, I just watched the Thin Red Line, completely unrelated. I just watched the Thin Red Line uh, again for, I don't know, uh, the seventh time. It's a film I really love. And, uh, you know, it's a war film set in the Pacific Theater of World War II. And there's just all these shots of like, you know, because it's Terrence Malick, like waving grass and nature. And, and there's like a shot. There's this one long shot of like, this wounded baby bird on the ground that it's like, you know, you're meant to think about the destruction of war and nature and all this sort of stuff like that. And I, it, it invokes that for me. Um, I guess how I would interpret it is um, even though things are awful, there's this ticking bomb at the center of, Mare's life, which is, you know, the Ross family revelation, whether it's Billy or John, and we'll talk about that. Like, you know, there's something big about to explode in Mare's life. However, I think 
I think we can see from this episode that she is um, the best position than she's ever been in her life, I think, to handle it because of the therapeutic work she's doing. And I think you see that in the conversation she has with Frank about Carrie. Um, well, and and in, in the conversation she has with Siobhan, where I think she's just really like trying to heal, uh, you know, buried wounds or um and in in being that emotionally healthy despite all this awful stuff that's going on like her way forward is a more hopeful one than it was when we first met her yeah do you know yeah um you know i'm looking at the episode titles because i was uh, thinking about them in aggregate yeah and i kind of want to take a little credit away from damon lindelof because episode seven is called Teresa did it <laughs> So I don't wow. know. Maybe that's like Damon, an, allu- an al- illusion or something to something else. But like <laughs> I don't know. All right. So uh, let's start. Let's start with Siobhan, uh Here in, in this episode. Um. Honestly, I, this is my biggest confusion point for the episode because I just don't know that I see the seeds that were planted that that like bloomed in this episode in terms of Siobhan coming completely unraveled um yeah really quickly because like Siobhan it's okay I think the story of of uh, a younger sibling of a of a troubled you know uh young man who has had to be the grown-up and has had to be sort of the type a hold everything together person who is very successful and all that sort of stuff like that I think the story of her unraveling is a really powerful one I just need to see like at least one thread go a little looser before this episode. What do you think? I agree. Yeah. And there's something I like about this and something I really don't like. The one thing I really don't like is that we have Mayor have this conversation with her therapist about finding her son's body. Yeah. And that Siobhan was the one there first on the scene. And then we have Siobhan drunk and saying to her mom, yelling at her mom about exactly that and it's just like that is yeah. too much of a narrative coincidence that is exactly kind of just too tidy writing i think there would have been a way to locate that particular pain within siobhan without having her explicitly reference something that mayor has just talked about a few scenes previous you know that right. bothered me yeah. so, something i do appreciate i guess about siobhan's kind of psychological uh mapping in this episode is the moment when Anne and Siobhan are talking about Siobhan's future and flying out to Berkeley and all that stuff. And Anne says, you know, something along the lines of to have it, it doesn't have to last in order to mean something. Right. Yeah. But Siobhan's entire, as we see it on the show, her entire outlook on familial love on love in of community is you stay you stick around that 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 presence is the foundation for all of that it's the proof of it right so it's a terrible violation that her brother chose to leave the world and now Anne is saying like well you know some things are impermanent and you can go and there's like you know people can keep moving and i think in in her in, in siobhan's mind that can't possibly be true, you know, because if that were true, then what is everyone doing in East Town? Like, what, like, isn't the whole point that you stick around, that you're loyal, dedicated, you're, you're there, not just in emotional ways, but in physical ways for, for each other. Um, and to have that kind of, have this outsider just be like, no, like, love works in all different kinds of ways. And, you know, 
and and to almost advocate for a little bit of not selfishness but sort of independence and all that um mm. that i can believe really unmooring siobhan from her understanding of like how human relationships are supposed to work. Mm, that's a good point. I mean, I think something that I have loved about Siobhan is this inversion of the the classic story of, you know, a character like Siobhan in a different story would be dying to get out of Easttown and doing anything. But like we've seen in previous episodes, Mare sort of being like, what's going on with your college applications? Like, where are you going? What are you doing? Like, I sent you to a good school so that you could, you know, have a better life, you know, and, and Siobhan sort of stubbornly clinging to Easttown. Um, and I, I like that about her. And so like, you know, this whole idea of Berkeley, I think is unmooring for her the way in which, yeah, I, I think that that moment with, with her, with Anne, her girlfriend was like, is the key. It just, yeah, there's just something missing connective tissue wise for me, but a great performance, good scene, love to see Mare in a healthier place, you know, sort of saying I'm sorry to her daughter and, and not, you know, trying to connect with her daughter rather than just be like, you're in, you're in a lot of trouble sort of thing, right? Like the, the last time Siobhan was in trouble, Mare just said something like, I'm so mad at you right now, <laughs> you know, I'm stormed right. out. And this is, this is very different from that, so. Speaking of, of mothers and kiddos, let's talk about Carrie, like the thrust of, I mean, I think I see very clearly what they're setting up here for Carrie. Um, I'll be curious to hear what you think, but like we see Carrie uh, is stretched thin. She's working a lot. She's saying no to drugs. Uh, as far as we've seen, you know, we're meant to think that Drew almost drowned in the bathtub, uh, which was literally <laughs> Helen's warning. I don't think that we needed that literal warning, but uh, that's what we got. So, uh, what what do you feel like is going on here with Gary? Well, I, I think that she is realizing that there is a difference between being sober and being ready to be a full time parent and a and a soul and a soul parent, a single parent. You know, yeah. I don't think that. Yeah. You know, I know there's a fear shared by Mary's family that like if Carrie gets custody that's it like he she's gone the kid's gone I don't know if Carrie sees it that way but I think what this episode does is probably push her closer towards like okay we need to organize some sort of co-parenting thing because I can't do it and I think the the moment in the in the tub I was like you better fucking not show like you better, you better not do anything like this and they didn't and I think that what that was getting at was that like there are I mean I'm not a parent but I can imagine I have spoken with friends who are parents that like there are myriad times throughout a, any day or week or month or whatever where there's that sudden horrible jolt of fear and like you think something has happened and then oh no it's okay you know um but like you that doesn't mean that you don't have to be vigilant and i think that carrie realizing and it's not really her fault she's working two jobs her hours are insane she's tr she's in recovery yeah i, I think you know the show is making a social point in that way, you know, like if only she had better resources, but it's also a, a personal thing to carry where it just would be like, I want to do this, but I also need help. And so much of this show is about people seeking help from family, from community. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, something about it, about these scenes with Carrie led me to hope like, you know, the poem or something that, uh, that, sh that that storyline is headed somewhere happy ish. I completely agree. I think that what we're going to see in the finale in the final moments of the show or something like that is uh, I would predict Carrie either moving into Mare's house or like into Frank's house around the back 
because uh, I mean, I don't know if Mare has an extra room, maybe if Siobhan ends up leaving for college or something like that, but like having Carrie there, you know, and like getting the help she needs, then she probably only has to work one job and, you know, Drew can be, and then Mare doesn't have to lose Drew, but not, in, but Mare, Mare can have Drew around, but not in a way that like deprives Carrie of him. That's like a really happy ending for that scenario. And I think that's what they're setting up in this episode. That's what I think. Yeah. Um, we'll see. And I thought, um, how do you pronounce uh, the actress's first name? So Soshi Bank Bacon. Kevin Bacon's daughter, Kira Cedric's daughter. Soshi. Soshi. Yeah. Yeah. I thought she's really good in this. Like I thought, I thought the bathtub scene was like a little like. Please don't try to make me think that you're going to drown a kid in this really already really bleak show. But I thought her reaction, like I just think she's really natural with that kid, and I yeah. thought her reaction of panic and stuff like that was really really well done too. All right, let's talk about Freddie and Beth and Dawn, who uh, you know are these sort of satellite um, characters to the story. You know, Dawn gets her kid back and she apologizes or thanks Mayor at least, um, and then Freddie ODs and you know, and and Beth had said earlier in the season that was something that she kind of you know was was hoping for which sounds awful but like you know she's just like i don't know what else to do like so it's like it's a complicated moment for her because she's devastated and relieved at the same time um how do you think you know this feels like a wrapping up of those storylines like we won't see them in the finale necessarily like how does all that work for you yeah it's a wrapping up it's it's also a you know um very sad and resigned gesture toward you know so many real life deaths and i think that mayor going into the house and finding him dead and just being like well okay you know i i think that that sort of it's not insensitivity but just this is par for the course for a lot of first responders in so many towns across the country you know like oh another day another overdose um you know um it's all too common and i think that as much as freddie uh was an emblem of something larger um this may have been the only way for it to end although you know we in carry we see it continuing on in a different way uh we see it with the um with missy and katie you know they got they detoxed in very in a very horrible way but you know i think but i think that the show unfortunately for freddie <laughs> had to acknowledge the reality that a lot that that most of these opioid addictions do end in death yeah and i think uh what you mentioned a couple episodes back was really um you know important to hold on to this idea of like you know what what is the, who is the villain of this story right and like we'll talk about maybe a, a literal answer to that but like the the opioid crisis or the drug crisis um and like this really sad thing about freddie and once again i just i like that something that robbie tan said in his interview is that brad inglesby wrote like complex backstories for every single character right so every single character you know beth and dawn and whatever they all have like a, a, a lot of information. Those actors have a lot of information to play off of. And with Freddie, I mean, it's a small detail, but like he's got a kid. And like the first time that they go into that house, which is, you know, in the first episode when Mare's chasing him and his, his heat has been turned off. Like there's photos of his kid on his fridge and like his family left him, but that's just so sad. Like, I mean, it's sad no matter what, 
but it's that little detail of like, and he's got a family and they just can't support him anymore in this. But, you know, what was lost is not just, you know, this man's life, but that kid lost a father as well. I shouldn't say most, by the way. Many opioid addictions end in death. I, I don't know the statistics, but many do. Let's talk about the Dylan and the Deacon and Jess. Um, that's a Deacon great we- play from the 70s. It's kind of a sex farce. <laughs> uh, I think that's Dylan and Deacon and Jess. Um, oh, right. So- <laughs> yeah. And Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Yeah. Long uh, let's get the Deacon out of the way. I think Mark, uh, we were right to sort of believe what he was saying. He gets arrested in this episode, but I think he's going to be released pretty soon. Um we did get one email from a listener. It's okay that we didn't read it, I think, but like who, you know, we had said we kind of liked the, that the question of what happened at the deacon's previous, is it parish? I don't know what it is for a deacon, uh, was, um, was left ambiguous. And one of our emailers said that they would have preferred it be confirmed one way or another, that they thought the story would be more interesting if it wasn't ambiguous. Maybe Brad Inglesby wrote that in the backstory that he gave to that actor, and, and he knows whether or not uh, w- what happened there, but we may never know. But I, I, that feels like the Deacon story wrapped up. Um, is there anything you want to say about about Father Red Herring, as some people are calling him? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, I, 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 how annoyed are we supposed to get about red herrings on shows like these? Like they need them, you know? Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, that actor whose name, uh, is not in front of me, James McArdle. Uh, he's really good. He was so yeah. good in the Angels in America revival that was in London and then moved to New York. Um, he played, uh, the lead essentially. Um, well, not prior, but Lewis. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, anyway, I, I think that this is where it had to end. And, um, uh, clearly the show is saying like this halo of suspicion will follow him for the rest of his life. You know, give it up to Deacon Mark. He did not rat out the pizza joint kids who beat him up. Said he fell on his face. Many well, times. pizza joint kids so. are, are they brutal reprise reprisals. <laughs> they will mess you up yeah, if you rat so, on them. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So, I mean, we already talked about Dylan. Is there anything more you want to say about Dylan and Jess here? I don't know what the hell's going on. You know, I, I thought that the th- sort of thriller scene where she's hiding under a car and, you know, like, I, I, I don't know what to make of this, to be honest, because it feels like so much of the rest of this episode is pointing us very heavily in the Ross direction Um, that I'm not sure this, you know, I don't know. There's something about it that reminded me. Have you ever seen the movie Bully? The Larry Clark yeah. movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That kind of just like teenagers being incredibly violent with each other and threatening and you kind of it can be all too easy to forget the older you get that there is this kind of interior world full of its own law in a way that young people can have uh especially ones like left to their own devices as often as these kids are Mm -hmm. um and i thought that was a pretty scary depiction of that but um it felt pretty sensational uh given everything else that happens in this episode so i'll be curious to see where that's all headed yeah i also have questions about like there's this line earlier in the season where zabel says the only person with a registered gun in town is kenny which is wild to me like this seems like a place where there would be maybe more registered gun owners um but like what why is that line even there because what does it mean because we've seen several guns now don is a gun uh dylan is a gun 
you know, like there's this there's this gun in the tackle box. Like I, I've Drew has a gun. <laughs> yeah, baby Drew has a bathtub gun. So yeah, it's uh, I have, I have a lot of questions about that. Okay, the next topic here is Mare's guilt and therapy and Guy Pierce. I guess so. We talked about this a little bit already. Like Mare's and therapy, we get the whole story of what happened with Kevin that day in flashback. I I really I. And another, just another moment for Kate Winslet to really shine as she has in these therapy scenes or that other earlier scene with the sort of child uh, specialist talking about her son and sort of staring into the middle distance and making me feel things. Like, especially when she said, like, the EMTs had had to pull me off of him. And, like, it's such a evolution of this character who, when we meet her in the first couple episodes, she is so clamped down, locked down, you know, like, tough, brittle, funny. And and here, like all the all the pain is sort of spilling out. I I did. I think I really one of the things I really loved most actually was the scene where she comes back from getting slapped by Zabel's mom, and Helen is there and asks how's it how it goes, and and Mayor just cries, and Helen hugs her, and like given what we learned about Helen and Mayor's dad and the way that like Helen felt about we don't talk about mental health and stuff like that, like. That just that felt very powerful to me in in that moment. What do you think? I love the little shorthand of how to go because it's it's Inglesby being you know showing the the unseen life of of the, these conversations and these people. Clearly, Mare and Helen had a conversation. I'm going to go to Colin's mom's house right. and 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 then she's kind of waiting up to find you know. I, I love the. It's just one of the ways that this show just gets the sort of intimate texture of family life really correct and i believe that she would come home and sob in her mother's arm after arms after that you know um Mm -hmm. and yeah i i don't know i i don't i guess i don't fully get where colin's mom's coming from she's obviously just grieving yeah but like he would have gone anyway you know like it, I don't, it does it's not mayor's fault but she's an easy person to blame i suppose well something that that uh craig zobel said to me in a conversation i think after you and i had recorded our podcast last week i asked him about why that audio of kevin sort of played over um at the end of episode five when zabel's dead on the ground and mayor sort of sitting there and i think you know what he said is like you know it's it, mayor is connecting her guilt over colin to her guilt over kevin that you know she she feels very similarly guilty about these two young men um and that he saw this series as basically about mayor going through whatever therapeutical process she needs to go through and in doing so it will help her solve whatever the case is that that solving the case is only accomplished if mayor can like push through her own uh, you know emotional blockages um I've yet to see the direct connection there, but uh, you know, I, I I have faith that all will be revealed in the finale. But um, so I think you know, Mare definitely sees herself in this woman who is in that brittle, angry at the world spot that we kind of met Mare right. in earlier, and that she's like, I can I can take that from her because I know I know what she's feeling. So Mare makes this other you know mentally healthy choice, uh, perhaps to press pause on her relationship with with the uh, Richard the author Guy Pierce who brings her 
lovely gift basket. <laughs> Our colleague Julie Miller, I was talking to her about like how we recover, we'd cover this episode. She's like, should I do a deep dive investigation to the gift basket? Which is such a Julie Miller question to ask. And I was like, yes, please. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of. Price it out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Package it. <laughs> Something I've heard Sell a it. lot of uh, questions about is why the show is so focused on rolling rock beer when uh, a lot of folks from that area, uh, I've been told drink youngling. Uh, so anyway, if you have beer, if you have local Delco beer uh, opinions on whether or not Rolling Rock is the beer of choice, let me know. Um, I liked this scene with Guy Pierce. I like this very mm-hmm. healthy choice that she's making here for herself. I got to work on me. I like him being like, I'll probably be around. He's like, I'm a 50s guy living in, you know, East Town. I was like, yeah, but you look like Guy Pierce, so. I think you'll be fine. Anyway, uh, and I would not be surprised if we don't see Richard again. I don't know. It feels like a lot of, a lot of things are being tied up with a bow in this episode. What do you think? Yeah. And I think that, you know, Mare saying that to Richard and being honest with him about like going on the date with Colin and everything, mm-hmm. um, does mirror in a little bit, perhaps the dawning realization that Carrie's having, which is like, Okay, I need to tend to some things, you know. I, I think it's about people not not realizing priorities, but sort of listening to themselves and observing what's around them and being like, Okay, this is a this is this is the amount of stuff that I can handle right now. And everything else might have to kind of wait or, you know, be done in a different way. And so I think, yeah, I think it was a very, like you said, healthy thing <laughs> that happened in that scene. And I yeah, I would not be surprised if that is uh a rap on Richard. And I, it's so funny because I've, I've, I've been talking to a bunch of people who are not like, you know, as deep as we are because they don't host a pot weekly podcast about the show. And they're all like still stuck on like, it has to be Guy Pierce. Why else is he in the show? I was like, guys, I explained that in episode one. It was a recast. Mm-hmm. Like Guy Pierce is here as a favor. And I think still people, a lot of people are going to walk away from, if he doesn't show up in the finale, a lot of people are going to walk away from this still just going like, why was Guy Pierce in this show to do that? Really? Well, he lives in East Town Township. <laughs> oh, so okay. He was just there. He was yeah. there and he just took uh, working for Rolling Rocks. Um, He's an acting professor at a local college. <laughs> he had one great acting professor book and now he's, yeah. Anyway. Um, all right. So let's, let's, let's wrap up with the Rosses. Richard, what do you think is going on here? What's your assessment? All right. So you wrote something on the site about your grand unified theory of John being the villain, right? right, right. Or the killer. Yes. Um, I agreed with you when you brought it up to me initially last week. Um, I now agree with you more. I think that this show, the this episode is setting it up so much to look like John is going to go out and maybe kill Billy to sort of spare the family from shame. And clearly it's Billy. He confessed, blah, 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 blah. I don't think that's actually what's happening. I think that Billy has agreed to lie for John for some reason. I don't know what that might be. Yeah. Um, and John doesn't trust him to maintain the lie. Correct. You know? Yes. Um, so I think that John is going to be our ultimate evil. I, I also, I don't know where the Ryan of it all comes in. Did he see John with this woman, Sandra, I believe her name was, uh, I think he did. So I think that's actually kind of unrelated and sort of like, like I think I said last week that Laurie is like, that was the big secret. And then her head is going to be turned mightily. It already has been in this episode. Yeah. Toward actually what's the big secret. <laughs> um, I rewound like three times watching Julia Nicholson just go, Billy? 
Yeah. I just love <laughs> yeah. her. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Um, I also wanted to say briefly that I really, again, love the care the show took to do this mattress scene with the Ross's dad. And you get this window into his life. He's like, I didn't think I'd be spending my retirement, you know, bunked up with my adult sons, like, and he's weary and they're concerned clearly about his health. And like, I just think the show is, you know, demonstrating yet another way, like all of the family networks in this and how people care for each other and, and how that can be exploited, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I think that giving us this kind of late in the game introduction to the Ross's interior family life outside of Lori's household um, was really valuable. And I think well done. Yeah. And I don't know if like, I'm, I'm trying to understand the piece of evidence that this is like a retired cop's gun. And I'm like, is their dad a retired? I was like scouring the edges of frames to see if there was like some indication that this guy was a retired cop, that he like worked with Mary's dad or something like that. Like, I don't know where this gun came from and why it's important that it's a retired cop. That's a big question mark I still have at the end of this. Um, yeah, I think it was Billy. I think if you, if you watch the episode thinking that John is guilty, there are so many moments where he's just looking shifty and squirrely as people are asking him questions. Um, my favorite exchange actually, cause, cause they're trying so hard to make something read two ways, right? So like when John's dad says, uh, like asks if he, if he had an affair and John says, Lori thinks I had an affair. <laughs> And then his dad asks for clarification and John just doesn't say anything uh, in a way that like you could be like, oh, he feels guilty, ashamed of what he did. Or like, Lori thinks I had an affair, but that's not really what's going on. And then Billy comes in and he's so mad and he's like, take responsibility for once in your life. And you think he's talking about the affair, but I think he's really angry about this other thing. Because my belief is that something went wrong. Um with Aaron, uh, Aaron reaching out to John saying, um, I'm going to tell everyone you're the father of my baby because she realized that Dylan is like not someone she wants her baby around. Right. She's like, I'm going to tell everyone. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if John's the one who convinced Aaron that she should say Dylan was the father in the first place. And I also wouldn't be surprised. I don't know how dark the show is going to go, but I wouldn't be surprised if Billy was also abused by John growing up. There is this like, if you like this trembling, dependent fear posture that Billy has with John where it's like, how did John treat Billy as they were growing up? Because if he's Mm -hmm. like whispering to his young son and during a blackout, like this is just our secret. And if he had sex with his like sort of niece when she was like 16 or whatever, like this is a guy who I think has been abusive to people younger than him his whole life. Um, that's how, that's who I think John Ross is. And like, Lori even says, Lori's like, you know, talking about the affair and Mare's like, you know, he's just going to put on the charm and you're going to take him back again. And, and Lori gets, Lori gets defensive about it. But like, that's just who John, like John Ross is a manipulator. That's who he is. That's who he's always been. That's what I think. Um, and so I think the show, I think the show is trying to make us think that Billy put that gun in the tackle box and that Billy is out there, but like, I think John put the gun in the tackle box and Billy discovered it. Yeah, and then, that's what I think. Yeah, yeah, and then John was like, hey, can you hand me the box? And Billy's like, no, I got it. <laughs> because he knows that like John is either going to try to make it look like he killed himself or kill him or something like that. Um, because he doesn't uh, – exactly what you said, Richard, that he doesn't trust that Billy will lie effect- effectively. Yeah, and I think that, you know – 
if all of these theories that we have pan out, like I think the portraiture there is that John is like a sociopath. Yeah. And I think that the tragedy of that would be in the show's broader kind of look at family is that like, yes, family, you know, a loving family can be incredibly valuable for support and for humor and for, you know, all the stuff of life, but it can also hide a lot and it can, it can be protective in a very bad way. Um, and I think that sort of duality showing us the good and the bad um, mm. would would sync up with the show's kind of ambivalent look at this town and these people. And like, I don't know what this is going to do to the Lori, because there is a little tension between Lori and Mary in this episode when Lori's like, I don't want to talk about my family. Like, is like, because what I think, right, is that Jess has brought in a photo, the photo that Jess brought, brings in implicates John. That's what I think. Right. That like when when Mare's right, boss yeah. is like, get Mare on the phone right now. It's because it's not Billy. It's John. Right. Mare's right. walking into a situation where she thinks she knows what's going on. I wouldn't be surprised if Billy it like maybe Mare's going to shoot Billy because she thinks he's guilty and he's got a maybe he's got a gun on John and she thinks Billy is the guilty one. She shoots like that's a tragedy I could see happening. Like mm-hmm. maybe all that goes down and she doesn't find out in that moment by the riverside like that it was actually uh you know like uh, who who knows how it's all going to unfurl but there's a real possibility because she's not waiting for backup that things are going to go very very badly in a way that that I hope does not but could drive a wedge between Lori and Mare and Lori who has been like the one person who wouldn't let Mare push her away in all of this you know yeah we're hoping for a big scene for Julian Nicholson the great Julian Nicholson when she finds out you know, we've we mentioned a broad church a couple times there is a tremendous i will just <laughs> without spoiling season one of broad church which has been out for a very long time so long and had a shitty american remake already but um there's a there's an opportunity for olivia coleman uh at the end of that first season uh which was a big part of i mean i think she'd already won a couple baftas at that point she was sort of already on a roll but like i think it was a big part of getting a lot of people to notice what Olivia Coleman could do. And so I'm hopeful that the show gives an opportunity like that to Julia Nicholson uh, next week. That would be great. Yeah. What else are you hoping for in the finale, Richard? Um, I'm, I'm hoping for a measured sense of closure. You know, I, I hope, I, I don't think given what everything the show has done for us, that it's going to, everything's going to be wrapped up in a neat bow. Um, but I kind of, I, and I expect, and I am looking forward to in a strange way, a, a sense of ambiguity in a lot of this, you know, um, that like where little bits of progress are made, little bits of happiness are found, but a lot else still hangs in the air. I think that the show has been very, um, for the most part, uh, well calibrated on that front you know not leaning too hard into drama into whatever um so that's what i hope i hope that like things are resolved satisfyingly but the show gives us a sense that like life very much in all the good and bad continues on for these people afterward i love that um all right i have i have big hopes like i don't need to be surprised by the finale because i feel very confident (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I know what's going on. So I want to be emotionally satisfied by the finale. That's what I want. Yeah. And what yeah. you're describing is that. So I'm looking forward to hopefully getting some emotional satisfaction. Um, and maybe yeah. I want Siobhan to go to Berkeley. 
or to get on a plane, you know, very like end of um, Six Feet Under, yeah. <laughs> driving oh. away, see a song plays, you know. You can't take a photo <laughs> of East Town, it's already gone, Siobhan. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, okay, until until we see Siobhan pack up and go to school, uh, Richard, where can folks find you? Well, our colleague, Louie Miller, has me packing hoagie rolling rock <laughs> gift baskets all weekend. So uh, if I get, if she gives me, lets me have a break, five minutes even, uh, I'll be tweeting at Rylaw's publishing on vf.com joanna until the end of east town where can people find you oh my god such a taskmaster julie miller uh you will find me i i have to go through the, the initiation process to join the pizza joint kids uh gang it's, oh you're getting jumped into the pizza gang yeah, yeah it's a lot of hazing a lot of uh a lot of uh sausage and pepperoni so we'll see how it goes uh when i'm not doing that you can find me on twitter at joe wrote this you can find both of us on vf.com and also on the podcast little gold men and we will be back for the end of it all next week bye Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>